and this is Leo Bobadilla, which rhymes with quesadilla, because last time we rhymed it with tortilla. How you doing, Katie? I am excited to share part two of this fascinating discussion we had with Dr. Bedford Palmer with our listeners. How are you doing, Leo? I'm doing well. In this part two, we first talked with Bedford about the virtual town hall on mental health among black men that featured former President Barack Obama and uh, John Lewis. Then we talked about obstacles faced by black men seeking therapy, including finding culturally competent therapists and misperceptions about disinterest in therapy. We talk about what strengths-based culturally competent therapy means and the upsides and downsides of employing barbers as community paraprofessionals to address gaps in mental health care for black men. Before getting to part two of our conversation, I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Palmer in case you didn't hear the first episode. Dr. Bedford Palmer is a chair of the counseling department at St. Mary's College of California. He's a licensed psychologist, consultant, and author of the fantastic children's book, Daddy, Why Am I Brown?, I first learned about Bedford's work through the podcast that he co-hosted with Dr. Lamisha Hill called Naming It. It focused on current events and pop culture through the intersection of psychology and social justice. We're thankful that Bedford agreed to join us on Psychodrama to share his expertise. Now let's go to part two of our conversation with him. So tying some of these issues together, we briefly touched on this before about how the American Psychological Association called this a racism pandemic and organized this virtual town hall where they had John Lewis, Barack Obama, and activists from My Brother's Keeper all talking about mental health among Black men and kind of having these open discussions where I thought that John Lewis and Obama were allowed themselves to be vulnerable about some of the real struggles that they faced and how they've coped with those things. What did you think about that town hall and that kind of approach and and how it might impact the public? Well, I think, you know, and I'll be honest, like I, like I, I told you, I wasn't able to watch the entire deal, but I did see kind of the times when, when, uh, when president Obama and um, Congressman Lewis uh, were speaking um, I think that it normalizes. It's it's kind of the normal, the basic normalization that we talk about in therapy. Like there, it's, it allows people to see, oh, this happens for other people. You know, this experience I'm having is not specific to me. You know, even though the details are specific, but this feeling, this this way of being, this 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 interaction that's happening, it's something that other people can can can. Um, can experience and not only that but when you have these larger than life figures saying like yeah me too um that can always be that's a positive thing that's something that's useful it lets people understand that you can you can live a life and be achieving and doing all that stuff um so i I think it's you know I, i do think it's it's good to kind of have role models speak to their experience um yeah you know, to me, like it, it feels like, and I can speak from my experience as, as you know, I'm Hispanic, uh, but uh, there's this, and I rec- recently reconnected with a bunch of friends from high school, high school back in Colombia. This was this is cross country pandemic, and like holy crap, we're, and I was struck by how much. Uh, it seems like we've evolved. It really like the if I was to talk about the. the we talked about our lives and maybe just a function of maturing, but I think it's also, they talked about culturally, we've evolved in a way we're more, we, we allow ourselves to be more vulnerable with each other about things that I don't think our our, our parents, like my, my our parents would never speak about things or let, let, let themselves be vulnerable about this kind of stuff. I mean, like the word machismo comes literally from our culture. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how, how there's been this uh, um, evolution. And so perhaps, um, I don't know what your perspective might be regarding um, among black men in in America. Has there been a change? Is it, is, it, is the be- is it just the beginning of that conversation, shifting towards being more open about mental health and allowing yourself to be vulnerable about things? Well, you know, I, honestly, in my experience as a clinician, um, I have I, I actually have some some discordant beliefs around like how black men are portrayed to not necessarily be into therapy. Mm. Um, like I am constantly getting calls from black men for therapy. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's an issue that there aren't enough black male therapists out there, um, to, to meet the demand. And 
I think that one of the pieces that folks have to remember is that some of the stereotypes they mix in with some of the ideas around like what's what's a problem for black folks. And so like hypermasculinity while can occur with black men, I don't know that it's necessarily the most prevalent thing for us. Like mm-hmm. um the black men I know have really high emotional intelligence. The black men I know like take care of themselves and their families and the people around them. Um they they're spiritual people and they focus on helping others and there's all this like love and embracing and speaking towards emotion like like my my black male friends they'll say I love you at the end of the conversation you know like we embrace when we see each other mm-hmm. like and I don't think that that's being really portrayed so like even mm-hmm. as you said like the whole machismo piece like I don't see that as much you know um, and so. And of course, you know, this is my own lens and my own particular kind of sure, sure. anecdotal piece. But um, when you look at the research, you know, people said black men were aloof to, to their families. But in fact, black men spend way more time with their kids, you know, than other groups, like in terms of like the, the present black fathers. And like what ends up happening is that there's this focus on the small percentage of people who are, um, you know, who are absent or who aren't doing something or whatever. And and mm. that's what society focuses on for black people. Whatever's negative, they're going to focus on. That said, I do think that, like, you know, we have to, when we're talking about working with black folks, I think, um, and black men, we do have to think about how do does our particular culture need to be made space for, you know? So when folks are talking about providing culturally competent services to black men, I think that you have to think more in terms of culture and like what's what what what's around these black people that make westernized therapy harder, you know? And one of the things is that spirituality isn't usually taken into account. Um so we know that like from the perspective of if you do statistics on psychologists and counselors and stuff, um there's a higher level of secular kind of belief sets and like no no mm-hmm. belief in any kind of higher power scientists kind of folks right the population of the planet isn't like that <laughs> you know like it's it's it's, right. a, it's the exact yeah. opposite so most people outside of sciences are like and even inside of sciences are, are are thinking more in terms of their their metaphysical and their spiritual as well so you you really have to be fluent in like the culture of spirituality if you're going to really serve you know black men like um that's part of our culture. That's part of where we're coming from. Even if, you know, even if you're not necessarily a very spiritual person as a black man, you still probably come from a space where that was, where that was valued. Um, and you understand it, even if you're not feeling it fully. And so thinking in terms of being able to be comfortable with, with including that stuff is important. Um, I think that you need to be able to be conversant about like, what is, the main issue for a lot of black people coming in the therapy is it's really, I mean, people will have diagnoses of depression or anxiety or whatever else is coming up. But generally, if you're a black person in America, something, there's going to be some piece about racism that's happening, um, mm-hmm. which is probably going to cause whatever's going on. So if you have a depression, it's going to be worse because you're also dealing with racism. If you have anxiety, it's going to be worse because you're also dealing with racism and it could be happening in school. It could be happening at work. It could be happening as you walk home. It could be traumatic experiences from police or your neighbors can be stalking you. I mean, there's so many crazy things that can be happening. Um, You have to be able to think about socioeconomics and like the different pressures that come from different levels of socioeconomics because whether you're poor, working class, middle class, or you have a lot of money or whatever, there's there's a way that our culture makes you feel crappy about it. You know, so if you're black and poor, then you're fitting some sort of stereotype. If you're, you know, if you come from a, if you were a kid who grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, now you have these issues around identity and whether you're black enough and all mm-hmm. this stuff, because we're not allowed to just be people, you know? Mm-hmm. Race makes it so that race says that black people are supposed to be poor. So if you're, if you are poor, then you're allowing the racist idea sets to be true. And if you're not poor, then you're not black because that's what you, you see what I'm saying. And that's not what I believe, but that's the pressure that mm-hmm. people will put on you. Mm-hmm. And that's the stuff that starts showing up in like therapy sessions where you're talking to someone and you know, they're code switching and trying to understand how to kind of live with live their, the life they want to live 
to deal with their partners and their families in ways that are positive and to survive in these work environments where they're being torn up, you know, they're being told, you know, I want to focus on your blackness and then I want you to not be black, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, I want to mm-hmm. be your, everybody wants to pretend like we can be friends, but there's so much racism in the space that you can't trust anybody, mm-hmm. you know, all these things happen. And if you're in a space where there's so much conflict, we all know that conflict breeds mental health problems, yeah. you know, like, the more conflict in a space, the more, you know, emotional instability in your environment, the more mental health issues are going to be expressed. And therefore, you end up having more folks having problems. And if you don't if you don't address that, that that the the, the environment around you, um, around the clients that you're working with, if you're focused too much on the internal landscape, then you're not going to be able to really serve folks. And I think that that's kind of one of the pieces, too, that you, you need to be nuanced in your provision of, of services to people of African descent. Otherwise mm-hmm. um, you can't be cookie cutters, not the same. That's an important point for, for sure about the, that we can't, that we have to look at the environment that our patients are in the larger environment that they're in and how that impacts their experiences. You mentioned on your website that you tend to use a cognitive behavioral therapy and strength based approach. And I was wondering what that, looks like and how this approach might be helpful for your patients that are presenting with these concerns about racism related issues or identity related issues. So um, the strength-based aspect um, that is based on, so I'm sure you all heard of positive psychology and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, That is kind of the way I like to look at positive psychology is it's, it's like country music to soul. Um, because mm-hmm. strength-based psychology has been out there and been developed by black psychologists since the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, being developed prior to that, but then expressed in, in, in that time. And so the positive psych movement came after that, and it used basically the tenets from this strength-based space. So I use strength-based um, because it's focused on what, what are people bringing with them and not what, what are they missing. Um and if you understand, black people in America are seen as having a deficit, um, whether it's a deficit of social economics or a deficit of culture or a deficit of character, um, different times and different people have basically said over and over again, there's something wrong, something missing from black people in the U.S. Um, that's it's a lie. It's a racist lie. People are people. We're all whole selves. Um, there's not a, we're not missing white culture. In fact, most black people can understand and navigate white culture better than white people because we see it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know the rules are really clear the same way that women are able to navigate like gendered spaces better than men because men can make full pause and they don't get hurt. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I see. It's, you know what I'm saying? So like, you know, yeah, yeah. That makes, that's a great analogy. Right. Mm-hmm. So like the, I guess what I'm saying is, is um, from a strength-based perspective, you have people come in and you're like, okay, what's going on with you? And then you see what's symptomatically happening, but you also understand, okay, this person has been healthy for a long time, or they found ways to be healthy in certain ways. What are those things that are they bringing that you can kind of you can you can build on and like work with, and you can you can encourage people from. You know, it's not you, you when you go into therapy, at least from a you know, and I'm also a counseling psychologist, so like it's another kind of strength-based kind of space to work from. Um, it's not about the problem; it's not about the diagnoses. That's important information. But like, if Katie, if you're my client, then it's about Katie's life, and mm-hmm. the depression is an aspect of Katie's life. You know, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that's temporary. It can it can be recurrent, but it's not like going to be your whole life. Um, and so we bring in, I bring in that kind of mentality as we're kind of working through it. And the way that mixes in with a cognitive behavioral approach is that um, I don't just assume that people are just one big bag of disorders, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and I also don't assume that I know how to define the disorder in their life. Um, so what's going on in your life and how are you defining reality? And based on the reality that you can like weave and explain to me, then I'm going to try to make a baseline based on that reality, not on, something I learned in a book, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
in, from a lot of, for instance, from a cognitive behavioral perspective, you do a lot of challenging of people's assumptions, you know? And so one of the big ones that'll happen is that that's like very different between like, say, uh, the average white person versus the average black person is when you're assuming, for instance, um, like negative intent or negative stuff happening, like if you like catastrophizing at work and stuff like that. Hi, Psychodrama listeners who may not be mental health workers. The catastrophizing referenced by Bedford simply refers to individuals' tendency to expect the worst outcome out of a situation and tell themselves that if an outcome occurs, it would be a catastrophe even if the facts around the situation are not that dire. So for example, if I don't do the edits for this podcast perfectly, we will lose all of our listeners. Within CBT or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, the goal is to help clients identify these thought patterns, examine the evidence for them, and help them change to more helpful thoughts that will likely lead to better outcomes. So for example, everybody understands a minor mistake here and there when recording, and the mistakes maybe make it even more approachable and less rehearsed and a better podcast. There you go. So, okay, back to Bedford catastrophizing at work and stuff like that mm-hmm. um if you're assuming if you're a white person and you're assuming that people are against you at work and that they're going to do something to you or that they're like conspiring to mess you over we're going to do a lot of work to see whether you're being paranoid mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. um if you're because a black you're person yeah yeah, yeah, yeah totally. if you're a black person working at like a you know in any corporate environment and you tell me that you're wondering if people are trying to conspire to get rid of you i'm gonna be like hmm, i wonder too let's figure this out mm-hmm. you know like because mm-hmm. the reality is is that people go through this every day like it's hard to keep a job when you're black and then you, like working while black in america is working through so many different kinds of minefields it's, it's crazy um and we need to like address that and deal with that in the therapeutic space before we can start messing with some of the other pieces, because it's very, it's very easy to hurt somebody. You know, if you, if, mm-hmm. if you say this is about you and it's not about you, now you're part of the problem, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and America will tell you over and over again, if you're a black person, if you're a woman, if you're any marginalized group, that it's your problem. You know, that's that whole anger thing. It's like, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're, if you're a, a black person, you're angry, you're when they say angry black man, like I'm an angry black man, they they act as if the implication is that the anger isn't justified. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a, when you're a concerned citizen, when you're a concerned white person, you're a concerned citizen, and obviously mm-hmm. you have values that are important, and you need to basically assert that those values need to be protected, even if it means like I'm not going to wear a mask in, a, in during a a, mm-hmm. a, a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah because I'm entitled to it and I get all this uh, assumptions of innocence and assumptions mm. of worthiness and competence and stuff. But a black person pissed off about like oppression that's like kept them from wealth and building and living and they have dead relatives around them. What's wrong with you? Why, why you keep bringing this up? Mm-hmm. We're just trying to have a meeting today. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. yeah, if, if I blew up, if I blew up your block, <laughs> could you have a meeting today? You know what I mean? Like, but right. no one that right. that's the conceit in the U S and so I think that, like, when you're talking about adapting whatever theoretical orientation you're bringing in, um, you have to look at the the tenets of the theory that you're using. And cognitive behavioral theory, it's it's that cognitions and behaviors are connected, and that um, your perception of the world is going to affect your mental health. Um, well, because we live in a space where the basically whole races of people get gaslighted by the larger society you have to be able to account for the gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the thing that I was going to say that had really kind of stuck with me, you said before, is regarding, so you said, you know, you you, had, you get plenty of black men coming into your office looking for services. And so what struck me then is it perhaps is also what you alluded to, is that there's not enough um, perhaps people who are going to be culturally competent to deal with that. So there's people who may want and are seeking those services. It's just that they don't see themselves comfortable going to, uh, system. There's so you know plenty of data suggesting that that is the case. That there's people who just don't feel comfortable going to a health uh, healthcare provider who is going to hold negative stereotypes about them or not understand it. Pro- uh, there's going to be a whole lot of barriers in order to be able to get to an actual place of helping, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's some so from a public health perspective, some really interesting approaches that have developed, um, trying to use as you said strengths within 
various communities. So I know for within black communities, but also Latino community, migrant communities, trying to use uh, people within the community who might have uh, access to um, the community comes to all the time to see if you can deploy mental health approaches towards it. And one of them is, the, the, you know, use, using barbers either for uh, public health and trying to get uh, more uh, more men to go to mental uh, to health, to just health screenings for diabetes and blood pressure, but apparently also um, get mental health training to to aid black communities, which is a really interesting approach. So just, yeah, it's kind of just reflecting back upon what you said, you know, there's perhaps not this lack of interest or lack of need, but there's just a lack of uh, actual places to receive that help. Yeah. I think one, before we go exactly there, I think one thing that I also want to point out is that um, there's a, there's an implication or there's a, there's an assumption that black folks aren't reaching out for help and that they have this kind of, the stigma is like some, somehow like based on just beliefs that we just hold, Mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, in my experience, it's about experience with people, mm-hmm. you know, and so w- the one of the f- primary issues with mental health provision to black people in America, once people actually get in the room, is that most psychologists, counselors, social workers, whoever, are not culturally competent. Mm-hmm. And so that's most folks. And I would say most of the folks who aren't culturally competent aren't even cult they're 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 racist <laughs> like mm-hmm. there are racist people in there providing poor service on purpose and mm. you know people might be mad about that but this is what i'm getting from people mm-hmm. you know this is what clients mm-hmm. come and tell me all the time is like I've, I've been through multiple clinicians and i went to white clinicians i went to asian clinicians i've been to black clinicians because remember i'm not just talking about like being black doesn't make you into a good black psychologist mm-hmm. like it's that our society is racist our society teaches you to be racist. You have to make huge efforts in your life to become more anti-racist, right? Most people don't do that. And so regardless of what they, you know, their intention is, they have beliefs about black people that make them treat black people poorly regardless mm-hmm. of the situation. And so now this person is, They've come to you in need, and all you can give them back is reflecting the racism of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, I think that that has to be a spoken to. And and we have to to point out the fact that like 92% of psychologists, for instance, are white. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that possible in our country with the demographics, except for through privilege and racism? You know, and when you think about the fact that 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 that's the case, and you have to think about these programs and who's being accepted who's being mentored through like there's all this stuff about these different forces in psychology and counseling about multiculturalism and stuff. And those forces are minority forces. Like the majority folks are just doing basic mainstream clinical work, which is inherently racist, sexist, heterosexist, you know, all of it, ableist, all of that, because you have to take the extra classes, right? You get your one multicultural course, you get your one multicultural like option course, like it's research or in clinical or in supervision or something. You get that one extra course and then that's it, you know, and the people who who care about stuff, then they go and they'll take their feminist course, too. And they'll take their their critical thought black psychology course, too. And mm-hmm. they'll take their working with immigrants, course. you know, what I'm saying like mm-hmm. folks will go and do that and then they'll seek practicum work and they'll seek you know, their, their, their other training, supervised training experiences, and you end up becoming this expert, but that's not because the program force set on you, mm-hmm. you know, that's because that's actually despite programs in a lot of cases. And so we have to understand that this isn't like, this isn't like a, a problem that just manifests out of nowhere. There's a whole infrastructure in the building psychologists and counselors who are not fit to work with people of color, women, or any other marginalized group. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when we think about, um, using paraprofessionals and I like to be really clear about that because yeah. people say this stuff in the press and they don't really talk about it with the right terminology. Mm. Having a barber talk about counseling no matter what you do unless they go get a, a, a unless they take a program, they go and get educated and I'm talking about get a whole master's degree or a whole doctorate, they are not a counselor and they're not a psychologist. They're a paraprofessional doing peer work. I don't have any problem with that because it's a normal thing. A lot of people do that. You can get mm. you can get a peer you can become a peer advisor as a college student or a high school student, you know. Um, you can get on to suicide 
prevention hotlines and, and do this kind of work with folks. Like uh, AA is purely peer peer driven. Right. Mm-hmm. A, I yeah. mean, but I mean, but that's I would say that's similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that they're talking about the barbers in the same way as like a self help um, mm-hmm. self help group. You know, like support group. Right. 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 Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I was saying, like, you know, there's lots of peer peer driven models, I guess. And AA is kind of perhaps the one that most people may be familiar with. But you're yeah. right. Yeah. You're right. I like the yeah. professional term. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's just like, I mean, it's a modality, right? Like there's a support groups and stuff like that. But what the way the, the media is putting it, and I, I do have a problem with the way that like, folks have talked about this is if these barbers are counselors and they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually got into a whole. I think I got in a whole internet argument with someone. Mm-hmm. It's like a while ago. So I was just like, well, "No, that's what like, we're here for. Let's hear right? about that." Well, no, you know, it basically came down to, and I think it, it was settled when I basically said to the guy because the guy got offended. Who he was a barber, and I was just like, "Dude, like, if what I want you to understand, because barbers are highly trained, uh, licensed um, practitioners. They do. They have a whole way of getting to getting a license and and." It's very specific. You have to go to school for that. Um, so I asked him, I was like, yo, just because I get some clippers and I watch a YouTube video, does that make me a barber? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like if, even if you told me if I, if you sat with me for a few hours and I took l- a little like, you know, a five hour training course with you, would that make me a barber? And he's like, no, obviously not. No, exactly. Like, so don't mm-hmm. call yourself a counselor. Mm-hmm. Don't imply that because you're not doing those things. You don't understand. You're not providing psychotherapy and this is why i teach people when i'm teaching my ethics courses like there's a difference between count counseling in small letters you know what i'm saying yeah and psychotherapy psychotherapy mm-hmm. is very specific counselors can do it you know psychologists can do it social workers can do it psychiatrists can do it but that's a skill set that isn't guaranteed unless you actually are trained in it mm-hmm. and paraprofessionals aren't they're trained in a peer model that's more about talking about here are resources. You should use those resources, but you should not be digging into stuff. And so I am for any kind of space where folks get more examples of like peer support and where they can kind of get shuttled to the right people. I'm down with that. What I'm not, what, what I have a problem with in terms of the whole like black barber thing around mental health is that what our society likes to do is put in the, we, we like to put patches on problems that are systemic mm, I see. as if they're not systemic. Yeah. Like the issue isn't like that black men can't, that black men don't want to go into, oh, we're so scared of going into a doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you know, it's, it's not, that's not what's happening. It's that there aren't any perfect, like we're not adhering to the law, for instance. So even if you have insurance in, in the United States, there's parity. Like Congress passed the mm-hmm. parity laws a long time ago that said that if you have a scraped knee, it's the same as if you have a, a, a bruised ego. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. You, there needs to be the exact same amount of care. So if, if I have Blue Cross or something like that, and then I hurt my knee and I have 22 visits I can get for that, I should be able to get 22 visits for my depression. And a lot of insurance companies make it way harder than it should be for you to access mental health work, and up to including, mm-hmm, for instance, mm-hmm. like, like a lot of insurance companies, they don't even have behavioral health as part of their network for real. And so mm-hmm. they have to go and do a whole other network. So they're not doing that job. So you got people who are coming in. In general, the United States, people don't have good access to mental health work. If you're talking about in right. neighborhoods and areas where black folks are, then it's going to be even worse because we don't tend to have services because cities built themselves so that black people and brown people and marginalized folks aren't allowed to be in spaces where these services are. So you're not, the hospital is too far away. People don't open clinics. You don't open offices. Mm-hmm. Only people who open offices in communities like to do individual practitioner work are people who are from that community. And people from that community are generally barred from getting those degrees. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, over and over, spin or spin around, spin around, and folks don't have access. What needs to happen, I think that the barber piece is a beautiful thing. They need to do that the same way you do with when you outreach to priests and to the clergy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and you outreach to community center people and you outreach to teachers and you do all these different things so that people can kind of figure out how to get towards mental health. But the reality is, is that we need to enforce parity laws. We need to be incentivizing um, greater 
uh, community mental health efforts. You know what I'm saying? Like we need to be putting money into making it so that if you feel depressed, it's very easy to go get help. And that's not the case. You know, people have to go through like, I mean, some folks, yeah, when, you, when you try to get screened to get to get a mental health, if you go to a lot of HMOs, mm-hmm. I mean, you will get through your whole depressive episode before you see somebody. <laughs> Congratulations, you know? you're you're okay. cured, but just by natural recovery, you're yeah, welcome. Exactly. And and if you're gonna if you if you want me if you want to pretend like like you cannot pretend that that's not on purpose like there's not people who are analyzing and saying you know what the average depressive episode is two weeks, mm-hmm. so let's get somebody if someone's gonna call us they're probably gonna be halfway through that so let's give them two weeks and then we probably won't have to provide coverage because it'll take mm-hmm. care of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and we'll have just enough there that if there's a crisis, then we can take in the person who's like going to kill themselves, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. Right, and like, that only takes it's a patch for something that's you know, not not taking care of a chronic problem or you know mm-hmm. saving money. It's, it's being a, a penny wise, pound foolish uh, approach to things, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's that, that's very yeah, very good, very fair. Thank you. And it, you know, it all just it always gets. I feel like in the U.S., you always have to just look at it and say whatever whatever issue you identify as being messed up, amplify that by multiple percentages, you know, yeah. or multiple times, and then that's what black people are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah, it's interesting. Too. I mean, I, the only thing I'll, I kind of just finish saying is I'm I'm kind of have probably similar feelings, but maybe I'm always encouraged to see trials like that in which we do empower people who may be lay people, uh, you know, either there are lay people that are training some degree, so like clergy or uh, even barbers or uh, even um, community leaders who may not be professionals in mental health, but another profession that requires some skill in order to deliver rapid services for, or you know, services or rapid interventions um, because there are so many areas that are so underserved. So I'm always very encouraged to see that that occurs. And it's encouraged to see um, people who, there was a trial, I want to say somewhere in rural India, in which they uh, trained uh, women for like 12 weeks in order to be able to provide services for women who had just given birth. And it reduced the, the, the risk of postpartum depression significantly. That's great. And at the same point, your 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 point is very valid, which is like, how much are we using You know that very piecemeal or kind of just like there we patched it over real nicely so we don't really have to take care of the problem or address uh, people who are going to be more acute because we already took care of that with with that um, other layperson approach so fair point yeah, yeah. yeah and I think one of the, the just to kind of uh, ex- accentuate what I'm saying um, there are people who are deemed in this country to be worthy of the best kind of care Right, they're they're deemed to to the expense is fine for them. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. For people in marginalized groups, we are relegated to secondary stuff. Oh right? my God, you are! The, I, please finish that thought, and I'll tell you exactly the case. I've jumped, kind of had in, this in my week, this this past week in my head. I'm like, oh my God, this could not be more stark. But yes, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you totally. I'm like, yes. Right. So, like, basically, um. With all respect to the barbers who are involved in these programs, and I, I encourage them to continue to do it, and I think that they're doing great jobs and for, for what I understand, you know. Um, a barber is not a clinician. A barber should not be treated like a clinician because a barber is a barber, and they're good at what they do. You know what I'm saying? you got to respect the, the, the thing that they do, which is, um, they. I mean, they help you look look your best, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. Like, which is important for mental health. Yeah. Um, those are really strong technical skills. I am straight up for real understanding that as I'm ordering my first pair of clippers and thinking mm-hmm. about attacking what's happened to my head since then. <laughs> um, and like, I mean, you can cut yourself and all kinds of shit. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's not, not, not an easy oh, thing I know. To, this to, is to do. I don't use yeah. cameras right now. I... <laughs> <laughs> right. But like, similarly, if you, if you don't understand what you're doing when you're talking to someone about something potentially traumatic or about an issue that's going on in their life. Um, the idea, like for instance, um, reading the articles, people talk about coming into barbershops asking for advice. Yeah, you should get advice from your barber. You should not get advice from a mental health professional. We don't do that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and people forget that and we don't say it enough. 
And I think we sometimes we get tired of saying it, so we just kind of let clients still say, oh, I'm looking for advice. And I'm like, I'm not giving it to you, but I'll, mm-hmm. you know, you can say that if you want. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, like, there's a thing about the way that you approach something without judgment and the way that you try to build, you try to build off of the building blocks mm-hmm. that other people provide for you for their lives. Sure. It takes a huge amount of training to uninvolve yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and it takes a huge amount of training to not harm folks in, in really specific ways. Um, and so similar, I, I think that that's the thing that people don't understand and people don't get about what we do as clinicians is that our work is actually dangerous. Like mm-hmm. we don't like to say it, but the other side of our work is torture. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like we, we, we can heal and we can torture the same as physicians. They can, uh, a person cutting someone open to, to help their heart is the same skill it takes to cut someone open to kill them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you can't just have people running around thinking that they're doing our job because they're not mm-hmm. doing our job and they could be harming people and they can be putting themselves in harm's way because our job, can, it's also dangerous for us. Mm-hmm. So you, you got someone sitting in the chair and they tell you a bunch of traumatic stuff that happened. And now guess what? You can actually be traumatized by the thing they said to you, mm-hmm. you know, and now you don't have the the the, the skill set to work on yourself to make sure that that vicarious traumatization doesn't get in the way of your life. Mm-hmm. Right. So like it's it's a complicated issue. And I think that we need to have more complicated discussions about it. And there needs to be like, I mean, some some common sense things that happen. Like, for instance, like I like to and I, I'm assuming in the in the in the main programs, they do this. They, they'll have those things. But like, is there a referral list? Is there like mm-hmm. uh, uh, mm-hmm. do they have an easy way of getting in contact with a clinician if something gets too too tough or too scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How they deal with hospitalization. Like if someone comes in, sits in your chair and they say they're suicidal, are you going to help them get to the emergency room? Because that is something a paraprofessional can do. Right. Is there supervision? Is there a clinician who they can consult with and talk to about stuff? Is anybody helping them with their own mental health? Right. Like, so as a barber, most barbers are working off of a cash business. They don't have, they have to buy their own insurance on that stuff. So they're, they're subject to the same difficulty with finding like support that their their clientele has yeah, you know point. so yeah it's a great point and especially i, I really like the the because when i've heard about these programs i heard it first with um just primary care trying to get more primary care and getting people to get more uh um, blood pressure checks and diabetes type 2 and well like, yeah, it's like but it's like we it seems like we're so stark for kind of feel good stories like yeah things are working out like no things are still really bad and we need to make sure that as you said our, how's that referral network going to look like? Because he can get the person really hyped to go and like, yeah, okay, I'm going to go get myself checked. Is there going to be a physician within 50 miles that is going to be competent to deal with this person? Is the mm-hmm. medical center ready for that? So that's, and and we we just want to feel good about it. Like, hey, something is done and I don't have to worry about that problem anymore. But the reality is it's far more stark. So yeah, that's great. That's a great point. And, the, and what, what really fired me up there for a second uh, when you mentioned regarding who is deserving or not of care, this week uh, I've been thinking a lot about the case of uh, Michael Hickson, who was a, a, a man who was in, in um, well, he was in under care, he contracted COVID, but he was quadriplegic. But then the doctors, and he's he's a, he's a black person, he's a black man, and in Houston, and despite the family's pleas, he was uh, he was moved to hospice care. Um, because uh, the situation and it reminded me of the of the of the differential treatment to Terry that you I don't know if you guys remember the the, the Terry Schiavo cl- uh, case. Mm-hmm. This was back in nineteen. This, this was in Florida. So you uh, and um, basically it was a woman who was in a vegetative state for a long time, and there was essentially just a legal court um, battle that went between her family and doctors and other family to try to see whether they would move her uh, remove life support. And he went for years, and she basically had congressmen at her. It just became kind of like one of those life, uh, pro-life issues and um, patient uh, advocate issues. And but it's like literal congressmen at her door. It just became a very hot issue. And then, and then during this pandemic, uh, despite um, the family's um, plea to not remove him from life support, they removed him to. They moved him to. Uh, hospice care and then he died a week later and now disability advocates are saying you know this is this is exactly what we're talking about this uh, this disparity between and the intersection between disability and being a black person in America that is makes you less you know more likely to die period and mm-hmm. that's that's kind of what what reminded me of when you said that so yeah, yeah great point 
I thought that we could close by talking about your beautiful children's book, yeah. Daddy, Why Am I Brown? And what inspired you to write that book? The point of that book um, is that I wanted to help folks have healthy conversations about family and skin color. Um, and it came from a conversation I had with my wife, with my partner. Um, she was working in... Um, in, in K through 12 environments. And she had on multiple occasions kind of told me about interactions she had with um, students who basically like really, really young kindergarten, first grade students who would get this lesson where um, they would go over colors. Mm. And invariably, another student, one of their peers would say something to the extent of your skin looks like poop or your skin looks like mm. dirt. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in this one case, this was like when, right before I wrote the book was like, you know, this really, it was, it, it, it was really clear to me how much it affected my partner. And, um, you know, I got really angry and I was like, how do I deal with this feeling? Because this is not my story, right? This mm. is, this is her story and I can't be all super righteous rage, you know, and not let her feel her feelings, but, you know, being a psychologist, I'm all up in my head. <laughs> and so I was like, how do I cope with this? Right. And then I was like thinking, I'm going to, I need to write this down. Maybe I need to like do something around this. I need to change this because that's also my issue. It's like when I see a problem, I'm like, Oh, I, apparently it's my responsibility to fix all of it, you know? <laughs> right, um, right. And so I, thought, you know, it would be interesting to see if I could put together something that would be able to help teachers and students and families not do this to to, to black students, black and brown students. Like, because um, in the end, like, there's this whole idea of you get this encounter experience when you're a kid and it happens over and over again, but you get encountered with race and you're like, oh, I'm just a person. And then suddenly I'm encountering racism and I realize that I'm the second class person that no one you know, that there's this, this whole racial identity development model that, like, follows us and happens over and over again. And I remember it happening to me at that young age. And it's devastating, you know, to be treated in that way and, and for people not to even acknowledge it. I mean, like, this kind of thing happens and this, like, thing that's just so devastating in the psyche happens and no one catches on. Mm -hmm. You know, teachers don't catch on. The other student doesn't catch on. Teacher might even intensify it by saying something like, oh, kind of dirt, you know, something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like not understanding what that means. And so I was like, well, one of the ways that we we work with people is that we're constantly trying to help people relearn how to interact and talk about race and gender and all that stuff. Well, what if we just taught kids at the beginning, like how to correctly approach this? Um, and what if there was a tool that kind of engaged parents and teachers so that they would see some of the pitfalls um, of this conversation and I could model it to them so they, they can, they, you know, instead of them kind of bumbling through it here's like a way to kind of talk about this and so that was like the beginning thought and i just i literally in a couple of hours wrote the the first draft mm -hmm. of the book um and i modeled it after um the idea of what if i was having this conversation um and i don't have a daughter i don't have any kids at this point but um mm -hmm. I, I was thinking what if i had a what if i had a little girl and oh, what would i say intense. you know and so yeah. that's where the conversation was. It was like, this is what I think would happen. This is what the questions I think would happen. And, you know, it, it progressed. The first, I wrote the first draft and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I ain't never, <laughs> I never did a child, children's book. This is interesting. Okay, save. And then went on with the rest of my life, you know. Um, and I came back to it um, intermittently and I started thinking, okay, I really want to do something with this, but then I don't know how to get a publisher. I don't know how to do you know illustrations and eventually i figured mm. out all those different pieces um and i did some revisions because for instance um i talked about color in the book and i used food as one of the examples like mocha mm. or something like that mm -hmm. um and my partner because she's awesome and she knows a bunch of stuff she uh, pointed out <laughs> hey you know maybe you shouldn't use that food stuff if you're trying to do this right and so she gave me some articles and we looked it over and i found like information about how we could just use colors that like come from color palettes. And mm. so that's like a really important part of the book is like describing people by, if you're going to use their colors to describe it, describing it right, you know? Mm. And so like, for instance, my skin color is kind of this russet brown, you know? 
and not like the the potato comes from the they call it a russet potato because the color russet mm-hmm. and wow. then potato it's not that the potato you know saying so it's not a food word it. it's just right and so like words like hickory for a really dark skin you know mm-hmm. um words like um what's another one uh joy Mm. grab the book and i'll, I'll yeah. describe <laughs> joy real quick is is so joy is uh ter- joy is a little girl with terracotta brown skin and a warm golden undertone oh that's yeah perfect. right and yeah. like, when you talk about someone's skin like that i mean just saying it that way it's beautiful right mm-hmm. right um, Absolutely. and so there's a you know there's a skin chart and you know I gotta give it up to the the makeup folks the Fenty folks specifically because mm-hmm. they had a really nice like breakdown of skin tones and stuff that I was able to pull into the book, uh, but like the idea is to kind of have this 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 healthier conversation where folks talk about this is how we talk about skin this is where skin tone comes from so I talk about the equator and like how your family and your ancestors being in certain um, relationship to to the equator is really what's defining how dark your skin is more than anything else and how that's like not really like race is like a construct i don't go go too Mm. deep into it i really focus on skin color and family and heritage Mm. and then i give like you know language to talk about that you know and how to normalize this idea that like the browning your skin is just browning your skin it doesn't really describe who you are or what you're doing it just describes your location your ancestors location on on the earth now does that mean that, you know, you're not going to be judged and all this stuff? No, I, I addressed that a little bit in there, too. But it's just um, wanting to give people I, I, my, my fantasy is that this little girl goes into this classroom and maybe her mom or dad or whoever bought the book and they had already gone through it. And then the kid says, hey, look, your skin looks like dirt. And, and then she's like, no, it doesn't. My skin looks like terracotta. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you talking about? You know, mm-hmm. like, I don't I don't have space in my head for this weird thing you just right. said, you know, mm-hmm. and then have like that energy to like, so the teacher's like, well, where do you think it comes from the equator? Like, my dad <laughs> said they came from the equator. You know, I'm kind of mm-hmm. thinking about this is how, you know, I have this fantasy of having a, uh, I actually have a fantasy of having a daughter. Mm. And her going to school and just pissing teachers off all the time, <laughs> just, just constantly, just digging at them, and like start, and it all starts with my daddy said, you know, and it's like yeah, Wrong. yeah, call Wrong. me, you know, anytime there's something racist that happens, my daddy said, you know, anytime something sexist, my daddy said, my dad's a psychologist and he said that's my fantasy. Probably you know? going to another parent-teacher meeting. I'm like, gotta go. Yeah, it's like. It's like, you probably don't want to call me because that means you admitting to me that you did something bad in class. You know what I'm saying? Because my daughter's fine. She's perfect. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of, you know, and so the book itself, I think, is it, it's kind of a cool book, I think, um, for parents to take because there's like a lot of curriculum. I actually have curriculum for teachers that's on the website. So if you go to Deeper Than Color, um, dot com or you just put the book title in uh daddy why am i brown dot com you can you can just go to the website and there's actual lesson plans so like for these folks who are homeschooling their kids right now i got six hours worth of lessons for you for free um there's activities in the back of the book oh you know it it helps that i work in uh it like my the at my college i work in the school of education and so My colleagues, um, our counseling that, department that, is next to a awesome. bunch of teachers, you know. So sure. that's awesome. Yeah. That's so I showed great. it to a colleague, and they were like, uh, <laughs> "You need to put some resources in." Here. <laughs> <laughs> then I, I and then I realized that she was an expert on children's books, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, I'll do whatever you say." <laughs> oh, that's an awesome synergy. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I definitely highly recommend the book, and we'll link to it for sure in the show notes, and I'm. Mm-hmm. So glad that you wrote that. Thank you so much yeah. for your time today, Thanks, Bedford. Bedford. This has awesome. just been great. excellent. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that's great. Pleasure. And pleasure. yeah, and, and that name again, and as you mentioned, is Fenty. Fenty Cosmetics. That's right. <laughs> we will be hashtagging that. You're just putting it out there, Rihanna. No, no, no pressure to kind of just throw some dough in this direction. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that was that was uh, Dr. Bedford Palmer who brought that, that was in. Dr. Bedford Palmer, <laughs> who has if you if you if, yes. if you want the uh, if you want a spokesperson from a psychology area, <laughs> like I'm happy. 
You know, I, I cannot imagine what a, a better avenue for Daddy Why Am I Brown for a better person to distribute it than to Rihanna. Rihanna, you can get uh, the makeup and book. Thank you. And, you know, no big deal. <laughs> just throwing it out. <laughs> any, any, I am open to any celebrity endorsement. I just want to get the book out to people. That's great. Um, and like really, you know, I think uh, just to kind of put it out there, it is it's on Amazon. Um, it's really easy to get at. You can you can get it from uh, at, on Kindle, and you can get it in print. Um, it's not on like uh, Apple or anything at this point, mainly because it's only me doing it, and it's really complicated trying to put these books through these different systems. And there's a lot of error messages that come up, and so. <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, yeah, if folks want to, you know, I'm I. I we have a social media it's called deeper than color on Instagram uh, where we're sending out like kind of trying to kid focused, parent focused, uh, anti-racist uh, information. Um, and uh, like I said, the website deeper than color, um, dot com, And you can find me on Instagram at Dr. BF Palmer. Um, I don't know. You didn't ask that. Yeah. I was just going to ask you that. So I'm glad you, you said it. Um, a- absolutely. And also you're, book was named by usa today right was am i getting that right as a highly recommended book yeah it was included in two so there was an article um that was uh talking about uh the recent murders um and how do you talk to kids about them um and so the one of my actual good friends um dr earl turner he uh he mentioned the book and they put it in to the, to the resources of that article. And then there was a second article that was just specifically um, reading resources for, for kids all K through 12. Um, how do you talk to your kids about this? And they put, put the book as a, um, a recommendation for, for kids in the like children's book category. So that was really awesome. I, I was, you know, I was amazed that my book was in US, USA Today in two different articles. So, yeah, I was really happy about that. And, like, a lot of people, you know, saw it. And I, I really feel like if you just look at the book, then it's something that you'll fall in love with because yep. um, that's what people have said, you know. Um, so really proud of it. Uh, well, now I know whoever has a kid, I will be giving that as a present. Well, thanks so much, Bed, for this has been great. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Appreciate you.